are uh, doing a project in our Royal Academy of War Sciences here about our security from a European perspective and, and one of the first issues that we are dealing with right now is uh, the southern dimension of security and I just want to make sure to what extent we need to make the nuclear component of this a part of our study so I just thought that maybe if we uh, we start now um, if you would like to update your views on on the situation uh, the way you you did in London uh, very very briefly recently I would ask you to uh, introduce yourself. I think you, you're much better to present yourself and your eminent background than, than I could do. Well, Lars Eric, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to this uh, podcast. Uh, I am uh, Bob Einhorn. I am now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, which is a uh, wa well known Washington think tank. Uh, but before uh, coming to Brookings, I spent 35 years. Uh, at the United States Department of State, uh, most of that time on nuclear issues. For the first half of my career, I was involved in east-west uh, arms negotiations. I uh, spent four years as a member of the U.S. delegation negotiating the strategic arms uh, reduction uh, agreement uh, uh, with, uh, you know, actually it was the Soviet Union in those days. This is the 19. 80s. Uh, latter part of my career, I was focused more on nonproliferation. Uh, in when Bill Clinton was uh, uh, president, I was uh, Assistant Secretary of State for nonproliferation. Uh, later, uh, I came back uh, at the request of Secretary Hillary Clinton to become her special uh, advisor for nonproliferation and arms control. Uh, and under uh, uh, President Clinton, I was the chief uh, U.S. Uh, negotiator with North Korea on its missile program. Uh, one of my responsibilities under Secretary Hillary Clinton uh, was to serve as the uh, deputy uh, on the U.S. Uh, delegation uh, in negotiations over Iran's nuclear program. So I guess I've uh, had an extensive experience on nuclear issues uh, at the State Department before coming to Brookings, where I've worked extensively on U.S. nuclear policy, uh, as well as uh, nonproliferation issues, especially North Korea and Iran. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, so clearly, we are, we are, we have a good reason to listen to you carefully in Sweden uh, when discussing our security situation. I note that. You have spent quite a bit of time on, on I Iran and also North Korea in the last decades, but you have gone over quite a number of cases actually uh, of uh, potential uh, future nuclear powers. You have addressed uh, in, uh, in, in a book from 2004 uh, a number of, of uh, cases that have been discussed over the over the many decades that we have had a risk of nuclear proliferation. You didn't take up Sweden, that was interesting to me to see, but, but you did take up, for instance, Germany, and maybe we can come back very briefly to Germany towards the end. But the main focus of my question today and inquiry is, is the southern dimension of, of European and global security, basically Middle East, uh, North African situation, which you covered extensively 
in your book in that time. And I, I also note that you updated your thinking on that in uh, at least in once I saw it in 2018 from Israel. You wrote uh, some pages on on the situation, and maybe you would like briefly to review. Uh, review uh, a few of those uh, countries now as we see it at the current time? Well, I think it's uh, always important uh, to uh, look at prospects uh, at uh, nuclear weapons proliferation in the Middle East. After all, uh, the Middle East as a region uh, was the home uh, to uh, Uh, more uh, weapons of mass destruction programs than anywhere else in the world. Uh, Libya, uh, uh, Iran, uh, Iraq, Syria, uh, all of them had uh, aspirations uh, to acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, Long ago in the 1950s under President uh, Nasser, uh, Egypt uh, had a a nuclear weapons development program. It never got uh, very far. So it's understandable that we'd focus uh, on the Middle East uh, and especially on Iran. Uh, clearly, uh, Iran had a nuclear weapons development program. The IAEA, in its report on the possible uh, military dimensions of Iran's nuclear program, came to the conclusion uh, that uh, Iran was pr- pursuing a range of experiments uh, that were devoted uh, to the development of nuclear weapons. Uh, I don't, uh, I think uh, with the conclusion of the Iran nuclear deal, the joint comprehensive plan of action, uh, the multilateral uh, agreement, I think Iran essentially uh, deferred a decision on whether it will resume that nuclear weapons development program. Uh, It didn't, uh, I think, uh, give up uh, any prospect of having nuclear weapons uh, ultimately. It kept its nuclear options open, uh, but I think for the time being, it's deferred that decision. Uh, and the we can talk about later, but the collapse of the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, I think raises questions uh, about uh, the future uh, of Iran's uh, nuclear program. So I think Iran is a country that really stands uh, watching now. Uh, and of course, then there's Saudi Arabia, Uh, a an arch rival of Iran, the uh, crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin uh, Salman, uh, has actually stated uh, that if Iran gets nuclear weapons, uh, Saudi Arabia will follow suit uh, as soon as possible. Uh, So uh, Saudi Arabia clearly has motive uh, to pursue nuclear weapons. Uh, it's also of concern that uh, in negotiations with the United States on a civil nuclear agreement, uh, the Saudis have turned down a- an American request that as part of such a bilateral agreement, uh, Saudi Arabia renounce uh, the acquisition uh, of any uh, uranium enrichment or plutonium reprocessing capability. Uh, and we're concerned. Why are they? Uh, why are they refusing to renounce these technologies, uh, which could be instrumental uh, in acquiring a nuclear weapons capability? Uh, so Saudi Arabia stands watch, watching, uh, but uh, technologically, it's uh, really at the starting gate. Uh, it uh, has uh, very undeveloped uh, nuclear science and engineering. It has to train a cadre. 
of uh, nuclear uh, engineers and scientists. Uh, it would depend very significantly on foreign assistance to acquire the wherewithal for nuclear weapons capability. Uh, and uh, and uh, I, I am unaware of any uh, nuclear uh, technology uh, uh, possessor uh, being willing uh, to uh, provide Saudi Arabia the necessary technology. The Nuclear Suppliers Group, the multilateral nuclear export control regime, uh, several years ago uh, adopted a guideline severely restricting the transfer of uh, enrichment or reprocessing technologies to, uh, to any non-nuclear weapon state. Uh, there have been re rumors from time to time uh, that Pakistan had long ago uh, agreed to assist uh, Saudi Arabia in the acquisition of nuclear weapons. I really uh, very much doubt that. Uh, I, uh, you know, since, since the AQ Khan network, uh, Pakistani nuclear scientist, uh, 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 was the, the, the network was, uh, was eradicated after it was found out. Uh, and I don't think uh, Pakistan would uh, take the risk um, of uh, being caught uh, assisting Saudi Arabia uh, with technologies relevant to nuclear weapons. But there are others in the uh, Middle East that stand watching. Uh, looking at Turkey, I, I would have to put Turkey on my watch list today for a number of reasons. You have a, an autocratic leader, uh, Erdogan, uh, who has recently um, you know, stated uh, that it's unfair uh, for some countries to have nuclear weapons and others like Turkey not to have them. He said at the, at the United Nations uh, that either uh, all countries uh, should uh, be permitted to have nuclear weapons or none of them should be uh, permitted. Uh, also, Turkey has aspirations for great uh, influence uh, in the uh, Middle East. Uh, you know, it's heirs to the to the to the Ottoman uh, Empire and sees itself as a uh, a, a very important regional power. It and may see uh, nuclear weapons uh, as a ticket to acquiring that kind of. Uh, regional uh, status. So Turkey is, is worth watching and it's much further advanced than Saudi Arabia uh, technologically. And then there are others to watch as well. Syria uh, had a, uh, a nuclear weapons program. It was very uh, primitive uh, and uh, they, uh, the Syrians uh, had acquired from North Korea uh, a, um, a nuclear uh, reactor uh, which was probably designed to produce plutonium for nuclear weapons program. The North Koreans helped the Syrians construct this uh, in Syria, uh, but it was uh, in, uh, I believe it was 2007, uh, it was uh, uh, bombed by uh, Israel. And that essentially put an end, uh, I think, to Syria's nuclear weapons ambitions. Uh, and since then, of course, you've had the, the Syrian civil war. Syria is in no shape. Uh, to mount uh, such a such a program, uh, and of course there's Egypt. Uh, I mentioned before that Egypt had a uh, an interest in acquiring nuclear weapons in the days of Nasser, uh, but uh, it has uh, essentially abandoned uh, that interest, especially under Mubarak, uh, who had no need, uh, who had no desire to pursue nuclear nuclear uh, technology either for civil or uh, military. 
uh, purposes. But now you have a uh, another autocratic leaders, uh, President Sisi, uh, uh, former military officer, uh, and uh, he may have uh, designs. We don't know. Uh, but I, I tend to be doubtful uh, because for a number of reasons, uh, Egypt's economy is in bad shape. I don't know if it's prepared to mount uh, the uh, effort financially. Uh, to acquire the necessary technologies, and also in terms of security incentives. Uh, Egypt's main security preoccupation has to do with uh, uh, extremism, uh, terrorists uh, operating in the uh, Sinai. Uh, it really has no uh, logical security need to acquire uh, nuclear weapons. Then, of course, there are others uh, in the region who are pursuing civil nuclear programs, the United Arab Emirates uh, is constructing uh, four nuclear power reactors with the assistance of South Korea. Uh, but uh, the UAE, uh, actually in an agreement with the United States, renounced the acquisition of all uranium enrichment and reprocessing uh, technology. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, as, as long as it holds to that commitment, it has no prospect of acquiring nuclear weapons. And while uh, the UAE considers Iran uh, to be an adversary, uh, it has uh, been more inclined to try to resolve difference with, with, with Iran diplomatically. It's recently uh, pursued various initiatives uh, uh, with Iran to try to reduce tensions. So I'm 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 doubtful the UAE UAE will pursue nuclear weapons. Uh, Jordan uh, also would like to acquire a nuclear power reactor, uh, but uh, it's at a very early stage. This is many years away, and I don't very much doubt uh, that Iran has any real desire for uh, nuclear weapons. So uh, Middle East continues to uh, require careful uh, surveillance uh, to see if uh, nuclear weapons uh, tendencies develop. Uh, but right now, I think the, the primary concern uh, is Iran. And uh, because of uncertainty about Iran's nuclear future, Saudi Arabia as well. I suppose that it could be useful for our listeners at this point to hear a word from you about the notion of the gold standard that you write about. Uh, you, you have that with the UAE as an example, because I think that may be important also when I look at the debate we had here about the, uh, the uh, treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons, where the additional protocol came up. But the gold standard is something more, I understand, than, than just adherence to the additional protocol. Yes, the, uh, the non-proliferation treaty uh, does not uh, prevent uh, a non-nuclear weapon state from acquiring uh, either uh, uranium enrichment uh, uh, capability or plutonium reprocessing capability. Uh, that was probably a loophole, probably a mistake in the NPT. It would have been better to rule out uh, these uh, technologies, which could, be used, which could be used for both peaceful purposes and to, uh, to acquire 
nuclear weapons. Uh, the United States has, uh, in its own uh, bilateral civil nuclear cooperation, tried its best to close that loophole uh, by uh, trying to reach agreement with uh, nuclear customers that they would not pursue uh, uranium enrichment uh, or plutonium reprocessing uh, programs. Uh, it succeeded, but only succeeded twice. Uh, one, as I mentioned before, with the United Arab Emirates, uh, and another uh, another time with Taiwan, which really uh, uh, had no choice uh, because the U.S. was its only willing uh, nuclear cooperation uh, partner. Um, we call this the gold standard uh, because it's a very um, uh, high level of protection uh, against any uh, nuclear uh, weapons capability. Uh, to to uh, acquire nuclear weapons, you have to uh, you have to have highly enriched uranium or plutonium, and you can't have uh, enriched uranium or plutonium uh, if you don't have uh, enrichment or reprocessing capabilities. So that that's why it's the gold standard. Uh, but while the United States was able to uh, achieve the gold standard with the UAE and Taiwan, it has not been able to uh, to achieve it with other uh, customers. Uh, the United States concluded a civil nuclear agreement with Vietnam and sought the gold standard, uh, but Vietnam wasn't prepared in a legally binding way uh, to uh, to renounce enrichment or reprocessing. So in a preambular uh, paragraph to that agreement, they said they had no intention of acquiring those capabilities in the future. Uh, the U.S. has been engaged for several years in negotiations with Saudi Arabia and Jordan, asking them to accept the gold standard, but neither has been prepared to accept it. I think in Jordan's case, uh, it's not really a question that they want to keep open a nuclear weapons option. Uh, I think they just don't want their uh, what they consider to be a uh, an important right to be abridged. Uh, for the Saudis, I have a different view. I think uh, their refusal to accept the gold standard indicates that they would like to keep the nuclear weapons option. However, theoretical and long range that be that that may be, uh, they don't want to give up that option. So, as a minimum, what we are talking about is the risk that we will have a number of threshold states in the future. That's right, uh, and that's that's right. I mean, uh, Iran uh, is not really a threshold state now. Uh, under the JCPOA, uh, it accepted uh, drastic restrictions on its uranium enrichment and reprocessing capabilities. Uh, it has, uh, under the JCPOA, very, very limited uh, capability. But now, as you know, in response to American maximum pressure and America's withdrawal from the JCPOA, uh, the Iranians have begun uh, quite incrementally, quite gradually uh, to break out. Uh, and so um, they're, they're, they're far away from having the infrastructure uh, to produce enough highly enriched uranium for nuclear weapons. Uh, but uh, we're concerned uh, that uh, if they continue to break out of the Iran nuclear deal, they could eventually uh, become a threshold uh, state. And what do I mean by threshold state? That means they have essentially the capability to produce enough highly enriched uranium for a bomb in a matter of weeks or even days. So then it's just a question of political will. 
Uh, it's uh, if they decided with such a breakout capability, a threshold capability uh, to acquire nuclear weapons, they could do so in a matter of perhaps six months. And that's very much to be avoided. And they would then also probably have the platforms and the delivery vehicles necessary in order to to send them off in, in some direction. That's that's very much a concern in the United States. Uh, Iran uh, has the most has the largest and most diverse uh, missile delivery program uh, in the Middle East. Uh, they have tested medium and intermediate range missiles. They are deploying them now. Uh, the United States acquired uh, intelligence uh, long ago uh, that uh, Iran uh, was uh, working on a missile uh, reentry vehicle uh, that could house uh, a nuclear weapon. So clearly, uh, they are pursuing uh, their missile program, especially their medium and intermediate range systems with a view perhaps uh, to making them nuclear weapons uh, delivery systems in the future. When talking about the damage that has been caused by the recent developments so on the JCPOA, um, there are two different views. I've, I've, uh, I've participated in discussions in, in Sweden with colleagues uh, from the US. Uh, some say that a new president uh, elected uh, for 2021 could relatively quickly re-establish uh, uh, the JCPOA uh, process. Uh, others, uh, and I just come from a rather sad discussion at CIPRI this afternoon, I participated in a discussion on Syria and uh, Turkey and Iran and so on, uh, where some Iran ex experts were extremely worried about the uh, the change in the political uh, atmosphere in Iran uh, to the worse, uh, that uh, hope is going away from the population and, and uh, many seriously consider leaving the country, that uh, uh, the the regime is really only focusing on staying in power and uh, and that we might have lost a number of years uh, going back to a situation which was probably is probably perhaps even worse than the one that you were dealing with uh, until 2013 when you were in 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 your uh, in your active position in government i suppose maybe how you how do you see the situation how is it possible to come back I think it may be very difficult. Uh, the current unrest, uh, the current protests in Iran uh, may be strengthening the hand uh, of the hardliners there. Uh, the, the hardliners have been attacking uh, President Rouhani, a relative moderate uh, in their system uh, for the JCPOA, uh, his willingness to reach out uh, to the West, to engage with the West. Uh, and uh, uh, because of the maximum pressure campaign uh, by the Trump administration uh, and the uh, very damaging uh, impact it's had on the Iranian economy, uh, Rouhani is taking a lot of blame uh, for being duped, uh, for, for negotiating uh, a deal uh, that hasn't really uh, strengthened the Iranian economy. So the hardliners are very much uh, in uh, in in control, I believe, uh, today. And if you recall, a few months ago uh, at New York in the UN General Assembly, President Macron of France uh, got fairly co close 
to uh, to uh, promoting a, uh, a reengagement, at least a discussion uh, between uh, Americans and Iranians uh, on the nuclear program and in other regional issues. Well, that fell apart uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and now, uh, with the uh, hardening of positions on both sides, I think the likelihood of resuming any kind of U.S.-Iranian dialogue uh, has become quite, uh, quite remote. And for the Trump administration, uh, I think these uh, protests uh, in Iran uh, have uh, ha, uh, have encouraged uh, them. Uh, the I think a few months ago, some in the Trump administration uh, were questioning uh, whether this maximum pressure campaign uh, would really uh, force uh, Iran to make uh, 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 far-reaching concessions. Uh, I think the unrest uh, in Iran recently, uh, and especially the anti uh, uh, anti-government attacks by these uh, protesters um, have given uh, uh, Trump hardliners uh, the hope uh, that this maximum pre pressure campaign uh, may actually force the Iranians to capitulate to far-reaching American demands. I think that's absolutely wrong. Uh, I think the pressure campaign is having a, a, a devastating impact on Iran. But Iran is a proud and resourceful country, and I don't see uh, Iran capitulating uh, to U.S. Uh, demands. Uh, and I think that, I, so now I have not much hope that the situation can get back on track. Uh, in this discussion we had at CIPRI today, we were also quite worried about the fact that uh, not only the situation for the regime in Iran is uh, is difficult, but there are also quite a number of other regimes in the region which are under pressure or uh, being destabilized uh, for different reasons, which make uh, it very difficult to keep the... Uh, I mean, you made a, a, a sterling contribution, I, I suppose, to international arms control by being able to develop a JCPOA process which was fairly delimited from the general, so to say, Middle Eastern uh, situation. It, you, you managed to, to take it aside, so to say, not to solve all questions at the same time. And uh, now it seems very, very difficult to, to, uh, to isolate the, the, uh, the, this process from other issues uh, related to uh, peace and stability in, in the Middle East, including the Israeli-Palestinian issue, the Syria, Turkey, Russia, uh, and all this. Actually, uh, critics of the Iran nuclear deal, critics of the JCPOA, uh, 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 attacked uh, the Obama administration decision uh, to limit uh, negotiations with uh, Iran uh, to the nuclear issue. Um, they, uh, the Obama administration, I think, made the right choice uh, to bring in missiles, to bring in uh, uh, Iran's support for its proxies in the region, I think would have uh, overly complicated this uh, negotiation. Uh, whereas the other members of the P5 plus one, including Russia and China, uh, agreed with the United States uh, that uh, uh, Iran uh, could not have nuclear weapons. There was no agreement among the uh, six uh, governments 
that um, uh, you know on on the nature uh, of Iran's uh, regional activities. Uh, so it was the right decision uh, to limit the JCPOA to the nuclear issue. Uh, but uh, uh, but critics in the United States. Uh, and in Israel, uh, of course. <laughs> and of course in Israel, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <clears throat> and in Saudi Arabia as well. Uh, they, they criticized the focus only on nuclear. They thought that while we had uh, the Iranian regime under pressure in 2013, 2014, 2015, we should have used that pressure. Uh, to get uh, Iran uh, not just to limit its nuclear program, uh, but to limit its missile program uh, and to rein in its support for regional proxies in Syria and Lebanon and Yemen and so forth. The um, question that I would like to finish uh, this um, rich menu of problems <laughs> with is basically the link to Europe. And we obviously have some sort of link. Uh, with Turkey, we've just had uh, a NATO summit where uh, they have managed to 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 contain some of the more difficult uh, issues that could have been raised there. But still, uh, there are indications in in the European discourse that the nuclear uh, situation is starting to be discussed in a way that we haven't seen for quite a number of years. I don't know to what extent one can say this has to do with the southern dimension, but particularly in Paris, uh, you note when you visit Paris that uh, French high uh, high representatives of the military establishment, not least, uh, often look in the southern dimension just as much as they do in the in the eastern one, so to say. And uh, of course, we have uh, there are American nuclear weapons. Uh, possibly uh, deployed in Turkey and in and there are uh, unconfirmed other uh, B61 uh, uh, bombs deployed in other European countries there is a modernization program and so on to what extent do you think that this will now become a serious political issue again I think that the combination of issues coming together here uh, I think there there is concern about prospects for proliferation in the Middle East. Um, there there are concerns about uh, Turkey's uh, alienation, Turkey's estrangement uh, from uh, from NATO, uh, from Europe, from the United States, and and the implications um, of of that. Uh, President Macron of France. Uh, when he talk about when he talks about the brain death of of NATO, um, I think you know he he's concerned um, about. Uh, I think what he was reflecting uh, was a concern uh, that the United States uh, may be cutting back its uh, uh, security commitment to Europe, and therefore Europe uh, needs to be more active in its own defense. Uh, I think this was a topic. Uh, I don't know whether it was explicitly discussed at the recent NATO summit in London uh, or whether it was only discussed informally uh, on the margins. Uh, but uh, I, I don't see much prospect um, of uh, Europeans uh, getting together and providing their own uh, uh, providing for their own defense independent of the United States. Uh, I think the United States uh, needs to show leadership. Uh, I think President Trump uh, has uh, taken a transactional approach to its alliance commitments. 
uh, it's he's implied uh, that the United States may not defend its uh, allies uh, in Europe if the uh, Europe if the NATO members of uh, the European members of NATO did not meet their two percent. Uh, uh, financial contributions. I think this is very unsettling uh, to uh, NATO members and other uh, European uh, governments. Uh, at the same time, uh, as uh, you know, the, the threat perception coming from the South grows, and it's not just the nuclear dimension, as you've suggested, Lars Eric. It's uh, it's other aspects, instability uh, throughout the region. Uh, whether uh, in Lebanon and Syria, uh, the uh, protests in Iraq, uh, it's probably difficulty forming a new government there. Uh, Libya remains a basket case. Uh, and Yemen, of course, the, the war there continues. So I think Europeans are, are right to be concerned about the threat from the South. Uh, but um, uh, the United States uh, has to continue to remain engaged and to work with uh, Europeans in meeting this threat.